0: everyone thanks for tuning in we want to invite you to learn more about the heart and vision of city of lights so check out our website at cityoflights.church and find us on facebook instagram and twitter at city lights Indie. thanks for listening we hope you enjoy today's message can we give him praise can we give him praise Man. Can we give a hand to our worship team this morning? I'm just so grateful thank them for leading us. This week, and I'm just going to jump right in here, we are continuing in a series called "Long Story Short." And uh, I, I want to just come right in uh, to where uh, we're going and, and kind of start off with a story. And on November 1st, 1937, A grant was given to Harvard University to initiate a study. Now, over the next four years, 268 sophomores were selected, and among them was a 19-year-old John F. Kennedy. Now, these 268 men were run through multiple medical examinations, psychological evaluations, and they were personally interviewed every two years since the study commenced. Now, as you can imagine, the research and the files were as thick as an unabridged dictionary. And they were stored in an office suite uh, behind Fenway. Now, it was totally considered the holy grail for researchers because it is the longest longitudinal study on human development in history. Now, a few years ago, the vault was open and some of the findings were revealed. Would any of you like to know any of the studies? All right, all right, I'll give you one. For example, I find this one very interesting. I'll give you one. This, the greatest predictor of happiness later on in life of the 268 men that they studied. Um, I, I feel like this should have a drum roll. Can you give me a drum roll? Drum roll, please. All right, here we go, here we go. It was determined that the greatest predictor of success and happiness later on in life was warm childhood relationships. Imagine that. There you have it. Now, it was amazing because of the two, of the, out of the 268 men that they studied, they actually found that those who had warm childhood relationships earned 141000 more than their counterparts. Now, let me just cut to the chase for a moment. So four decades, after four decades, George Valiant, who was the keeper of these files, he was the keeper of all the research, he came out with a couple different books, and he sum- surmises, he, he boils down 75 years worth of, re- worth of research, $20 million worth of funding, down to a five word conclusion. And here it is Happiness is love, full stop. So, really, it's just three words. And he breaks it down like this these are Valiant's words. He says, Happiness. Is only the cart, but love is the horse. Now, nine weeks ago, we began this long story short series, and we've gotten all the way through the Old Testament. Last week, we started in the New Testament. So if you're just joining us today, I just want to encourage you, you're coming at a great time. Because now we've finally gotten to where we have said the Old Testament is Christ-concealed. Christ has been revealed. Christ has come. Live the life we should have lived. Die the death that we should have died, died and rose three days later in our place, announcing and pronouncing to all that he was who we said he was. So this is a great time to be here. I want to encourage you to stay with us over the next four weeks as we continue in this series. But I want to pull out for just a moment and look back in this observation. You see, the Bible is a big book it's actually 66 books to be exact it has 773,692 words in case anyone's counting There are 40 human authors that I believe were inspired, divinely inspired by God. And we have farmers and fishermen and tax collectors and poets and prophets and doctors and kings who wrote on three different continents in three different languages. And it covers every topic under the sun. We've got comedies, romantic comedies, and we've got tragedies, action, adventure. There's some musicals in here and lots and lots of documentaries. Now, what I'm getting to is, is even if, whether or not you believe the Bible to be the inspired, infallible word of God, which I do, you got to give me this. It is the longest longitudinal study in all of history. It is an amazing compilation of stories. It reveals human nature in remarkable ways, what's right and what's wrong. It reveals to us the character of God. Who he is as well as who he is not. So I want to give you the Cliffs Notes version this morning. I want to summarize all of the scripture in one biblical five words. God is love. Full stop. Somebody get excited about that this morning. It's okay. Thanks for coming. We'll see you next week. It's been a great message. (laughs) I thought I'd cut it short. No, no, no. We could stop right there. It would be a very long story made short. God is love. Now, there are 400 names for God in Scripture. He's called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace, Healer, Creator, Redeemer, and He's all of that and more. But if you said to me, Can you tell me something about God in just three words or less? My response would be to you God is love. Can I tell you something about him? God is good, God is mighty. God is powerful, God is just, God is righteous, God is holy, God is life, and God is light. And there are thousands of descriptors, and we could go on and on and on for all eternity as the angels do in heaven with so many descriptors. But if you ask me to distill it down, what I want you to hear this morning is that God is love. Now, I understand that for some of you that might be hard to hear. I understand that. For some of you, it might be hard to process this morning because even the concept or the idea of love has been so stripped away of its weightiness and sacrifice that it can feel as soft and as cheap as Easter peeps this morning. And for some of you, you have a hard time hearing that God is love because some have represented God to you in a way that misrepresented him. I also understand that even as we sing and we celebrate and we party, some of you you have a very hard time doing that because you've experienced so much pain and suffering and hardship. And even as you've wrestled at times to process, even if there is a God, it's hard for you to imagine that that God would even be good. I want you to know this morning that we don't ignore those things or just brush them under the rug. That's not how we operate here. We understand that there is a weightiness and there is a heaviness, but I want to help you understand this morning that regardless of how he has been represented to you in the past, he wants you to know him as love this morning, and he wants you to experience him for yourself. A.W. Tozer has this quote. He says that what comes to mind when we think of God is the most important thing about us. So if love is not the first thing that comes to your mind when you think of God, I believe you have the wrong picture of who he is. My prayer is that you would understand that God doesn't just love you, he actually likes you. He actually likes you. Now, how do I know that he is love? Well, it's because he's revealed this to himself, you see, to us through his word. There's a name by John, and he's actually the one who penned these words in Scripture that God is loved. He did so in John four sixteen, in 1 John four sixteen, and he also wrote an account of Jesus uh, called the Gospel of John. And in the Gospel of John chapter three verse sixteen, it tells us this: For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. John continues in 1 John 3, 16. He says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. So this is how we know what love is, that Jesus laid down his life for us. Now, in his book, Play the Man, Mark Batterson, who's a pastor and, a, and a, an incredible author, he outlines seven virtues of, of manhood. Now these virtues apply to women as well as men, but he was specifically targeting men in his book. And the first of the virtues that he highlights is tough love. And I love the way he puts it here. He states this. He says, "Jesus is the definition of tough love." Tough love is carrying a 300-pound cross 650 yards down the Via della Rosa for someone else's sin. That's tough love. Tough love is allowing someone to nail you to the cross with seven-inch spikes for someone else's sin. Tough love is allowing someone to whip you with a cat of nine tails pulling flesh from bone for someone else's sin. That is tough love. But that is who he is. And that is what he does. What am I getting to? You mean the cross To Christ. The closest thing that I can think of to give you a picture of the incredible love of the Father is to think about just the love that I have for my children. Uh, One of my favorite rituals to do, bedtime rituals to do with my little girl, Ella Rose. Some of y'all know her as Ninja Sissy Mama. (laughs) Is after we get dressed, you know, we do this little thing where, you know, I give her these kisses. I say, I got to get my kisses. And if you've seen her big old cheeks cheeks, there's lots of ground to cover. And so I kiss her, her right cheek. And then I kiss her left cheek. And one thing she started adding a few months ago, which I was like, okay, I'll be fine with it. She goes, I gotta save some kisses for mommy. And I was like, okay, you can save some for mommy. And then she lets me proceed. So then I kiss her forehead. I say, Oh, let me get that forehead. Oh, let me get that chin. I kiss her chin. And then I kiss her nose. Oh, let me get that chin. I said, Let me get those lips. And she kisses me on the lips and she pulls me in tight. She goes, And then once I finish, she goes, okay, Dad, act dizzy. And I go, whoa. (laughs) But then as I lay her down, I get ready to put her blanket on. I go, Ella, who loves you? Sometimes she has her passy in her mouth, and she goes, Daddy. And I say, Ella, how much do I love you? She goes, with my whole heart. And I say, that's right, baby girl, with my whole heart. Now, is she perfect? She's about as perfect as her daddy. (laughs) Some of y'all know her other nickname is Spicy Mama. (laughs) Right? But is there anything that she could do to make me love her any less? Absolutely not. And, and, And I'm just an earthly father with finite resources. We have a heavenly father with infinite love, who loves you no matter what you've done and where you've been and what you've experienced. He loves you on your good days and he loves you on your bad days. And there's nothing you can do to get him to love you any more or any less. He loves you perfectly. He loves you eternally. And this God, he went to the cross for your sake because he can never give up on you because he loves you with his whole heart. God doesn't love us based on us and who we are. He loves us based on his own character, who he is. Do you want to know something? When you succeed in life, God says, I love you. When you fail in life, God says, I love you. When you're going through the storm and faith seems so hard to hold on to, God looks at you and he says, I love you. God is love. Do you know what the crucifixion and the resurrection are all about? It's about a God who would not and could not give up on us. It's about a God who was literally willing to go to hell and back. It's about a God who extends grace to the very people who put him on that cross. And he said, forgive them. For they know not what they do. God is love. Full stop. Now it's with that backdrop that I want us to look at the oldest longitudinal study in history called the Word. And I want us to look at an encounter that took place in the Gospel of John with a woman by the name of Mary. I know that was a common name in Scripture, kind of like John is today. But we're going to look at Mary, who was from the region of Magdala, and look at her encounter as she experienced the risen Savior. Would you turn with me? You can turn with me in your Bibles. You can look on your devices or on the screen. We're going to begin in chapter 20, verse 11. It says here, Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. As she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus was laying, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to him, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Now, I want to pause for a moment here because there is this phenomenon in psychology called hindsight bias. And it simply means this. When you know the outcome of an event, you can tend to assume that the ending is inevitable. And so I I think that one of the hardest things that we have when it comes to really getting the full brunt and the impact of Scripture is that we already know the end of the story. So we know that before Peter even steps out of the boat, he's going to walk on water. We know that before Jesus hangs on the cross, that three days later, he's going to raise from the dead. And so I think we can miss what's happening in this moment. Please hear me. Mary did not realize what was about to happen. For Mary, she was grieving that hope was three days lost. Mary had never had a paradigm or an expectation that when she went to the tomb, what was about to happen was going to happen. The whole reason that she was there in the first place was just to carry out the Jewish tradition of of embalming practices. And so I want us to feel the amazement and the surprise and the weightiness that comes in this moment. In verse 14, it says, Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Now, some people say, how could she not know that it was Jesus? Have you ever been under so much pain and sorrow that you could barely even see what was in front of you? Yet it says she's standing here. Jesus says to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary, Jesus said to her, Mary. Now, when I think about this moment, it's kind of hard. It's hard to kind of take in the fullness of what she was experiencing in that moment. See, Mary, Jesus was probably the kindest, gentlest, greatest man. He was the greatest man that she'd ever known. She had been ridiculed, dehumanized, beaten, battered, abused in her life. Jesus was the first man that truly affirmed her and honored her and gave her dignity. His voice must have been the sweetest thing that she would ever know. And three days prior, the greatest man that not only was great himself but called her and affirmed her for what was in her was gone. She must have imagined that this voice, I, I wonder if she was like I was when my daughter passed away. And it was like after she passed away, if there was anything that I could find of hers. I remember sitting in my room with a burp cloth just because it smelled like her, trying to remember and telling myself, God, I don't want to forget what she smelled like. I don't want to forget what her laugh sounded like. And I can imagine that she was walking to the tomb trying to remember what was it like to hear his voice. And in this moment... She hears her name, Mary. Oh, I know it's you now. God wants you to know he knows your name. God knows your name. And you need a faith with your name on it. You need to know that this good news and this gospel is not just something with my name on it. It's not just something with the name of your parents. It's not just something with the name of the person that brought you here this morning. Jesus rose from the dead so he can reach out to you and call your name. And I can imagine it's not a stretch to think. That this moment had to be the greatest moment that Mary had ever experienced in her life. Now what's incredible to me is we don't really know much about Mary beyond this encounter. She kind of walks off of the pages of Scripture and there's lots of theories out there. Some people think that maybe she married John and moved to Ephesus, but we don't really know. But what we do know Is from that moment and throughout all eternity, she received a distinction like no other. That she and she alone was the first to witness the resurrected Jesus Christ. I mean, what an honor. What an incredible distinction to be marked with. Now, what's interesting in this is that if you actually looked at her story, you would think, That Mary maybe would have been the least likely person to receive this kind of incredible distinction. The least likely candidate to be known for all time for this specific designation. Now we don't know a ton about Mary, but we know a couple things. One thing that I said before is we know that she was from a region called Magdala. Another thing that we know about Mary is that she was possessed by seven demons. Now I know some of you could hear what I'm saying, and like all of a sudden you got images of the last horror movie that you saw. Hopefully it wasn't recently. But I think it would be safe to say that if someone had seven demons that they would probably have some issues, at least seven of them, right? I think that would be the definition of dysfunctional, right? Seven issues or seven problems that she can't solve, seven mistakes in her life that she can't fix, seven broken places in her life. And these are the kinds of people that we give up on. These are the kinds of people that are too much for us. Many times we feel like, man, I'm too much for myself. But not to God. You see, it's amazing how he finds a way to take jacked up people and weave him into his story to show up and show out his grace and mercy. I mean, more than five of you can clap. Hallelujah. That's my testimony. I love the fact that he shows up and he uses the least likely candidates for the greatest role in some of the most important moments in history. I can tell you this is just one more reason why I love God so much. Because he goes after, this is who he goes after. This is who he chooses. This is who he pursues. And so I want to ask you this for a moment. What is the central fact of your life? Maybe the way I'm saying it is differently than how you've been approached before. You Maybe not been asked that question, but I'll frame it this way. What defines you? What's the most important event that's happened in your past? What do I need to know about you if I really want to know the depths of who you are? At the beginning of this year, My wife and I were on a three-month sabbatical. Many of you know this. It's an incredible time of God bringing some healing and some refreshing and some strengthening. And at the beginning of this portion of the sabbatical, I had the honor of and just a great opportunity to connect with and meet with a phenomenal Christian therapist by the name of Dr. Michael Zoda. He's just an incredible man of God, incredible professional. And the first day that we met, one of the things that he asked me to do is to kind of just tell my story and to begin to highlight some of these significant moments, some of the quintessential historical facts about my life that contributed and shaped me, who I am in positive ways and negative ways. And we began to go through and unpack these stories, these central facts, these key facts. That if you want to know what has shaped me, what makes me who I am, what's impacted me, what's affected me, you might want to know this information. Now, I just want to play life coach for a moment. And if I'm a life coach and I'm meeting with Mary and we are identifying the key facts, again, we don't know all of them, but I think it would be fair to say that in Scripture, from Scripture, we can certainly tell that one of these key key facts is that she was possessed by demons. Now, we don't know how. We don't know how it happened. We don't know exactly what was going on, but I could say that it was probably rather traumatic and I would imagine that this might be a moment that could define you. In fact, it might be the central fact of her life. Now, I want to go back to this Harvard study for a second. And George Valiant, he profiles and he looks at all 268 men in a book that he titled Triumphs of Experience. And as you can imagine, for, for, to protect their identity, he gives them all pseudonyms. One of them is a guy named Art Miller. Now, of the 268 sophomores who were selected to be part of the study, only one of them went AWOL. It's pretty remarkable, honestly, as as broad a study as it was, to have happened over 80 years in existence. But it was Art Miller. In 1968, he disappeared. He went off the radar. He had earned a Ph.D. in Renaissance drama, He moved to Australia, to the Outback, to be exact. And then in 1980, Valiant tracked him down and went to Australia and interviewed him to catch up on the 20 years gap. Long story short, Art Miller had some demons. Art Miller, he was a mystery to George Valiant. Valiant couldn't figure out Art Miller until one day when he was scouring through 600 files in his file folder, And he found one specific piece of paper that had previously eluded him. It was the military record of Art Miller from World War II. Now, this is 55 years after the fact. On June 13th, 1944, a week after D-Day, Art Miller found himself in an Italian-filled hospital. And the interviewing doctor recorded the following. I want you to hear this. He said, patient saw three or four days of combat. He remembers killing three Germans. The last he remembers is attacking uphill with men falling. He remembers nearby land blast, and then they woke up here two days ago. He has no idea what's happened in the intervening time, and on admission, he was acutely disturbed. He kept his fist clenched, and he threw himself about calling, Shells! Bombs! I'm afraid! And no contact could be established. He was restless, restless and disturbed over response to minor stimuli, and he crawls under covers and into the fetal position at the sound of planes. That changed everything for George Valiant. This is what he said in response to this note. It had been easy to stand in judgment. And I could point to Miller's non-compliant and passive-aggressive behavior I could note that he had run away from his family and his country and that his earned income was as low as any man in the study. Or I could, and in 2010 I finally did, understand Art Miller's whole life as a creative example of post-traumatic growth. Now PTSD wasn't diagnosed 70 years ago. But would it be fair to say that that had become a central fact of his life? that his life had become a painful reaction to the trauma he'd experienced. He was a broken man until the day that he died. And I promise you, that broke the heart of God. Our world is filled with so much trauma. Civil wars, genocide, sex trafficking, child abuse, bullying. We could go around the room one by one by one and we could fill in the blank. Share war stories and scars all over this place. There's so much hurt. We need so much healing. We need so much hope. And I'm not a licensed therapist. and I don't play one on TV. I don't want to overstep my bounds. But I believe that most of us have a few painful experiences that have defined us through the years, that our lives at times have become reactions to some of the things that were done to us, or even some of the mistakes that we brought upon ourselves. It's brokenness, it's this hurt, it's the shame, it's the anger, it's the doubt. And like Art Miller, our lives can become an attempt to heal the hurt and to solve the problem and to erase the pain and to fill the void. And we realize that we can't do it. We realize that these demons that we've battled, we can't dispel and they begin to define us. I want you to hear what I'm going to say because I know that some of you in here right now, those moments... They have defined you, and you don't like the facts. You don't like the defining facts of your life. They're not what you want them to be. Now, this morning, I can't change them. I so wish I could go into a time-traveling phone booth somewhere, and we could change all the things. Can't change the past. But I know the one who can ensure your future. I know the one who came out and said, it is finished. There is hope this morning. If you're here this morning under the sound of my voice, I want to tell you, it is not over. Why? Why? Because the tomb is empty. Because the moment Jesus stepped out from death and the grave, the word impossible became erased out of the dictionary. Because the moment that Jesus rose victoriously, you had a new hope and a new future. That is the central fact of history. The question is, is it the central fact of your life? See, I think that's one of the challenges that we face is that we tend to only celebrate the resurrection one day a year. And all the other days, we like to live as though Jesus is still hanging on the cross. Can I tell you the only thing that is still nailed to the cross is confessed sin this morning? That's the only thing. But could we live like that? The resurrection is something that we want to celebrate every day and every way because God is in the resurrection business. He resurrects relationships. He resurrects marriages. He resurrects parts of our personality that we thought we had lost forever. You know, next weekend, several people are going to be baptized. I'm excited about that. And you know, baptism is it's an incredibly powerful and symbolic event. And when you go under the water, it symbolizes death to self. And when you come back up, and I just want to encourage you, we bat a thousand with that. Everyone's come back up, we do really well. <laughs> it symbolizes new life in Christ, it's a new day. It's a new normal. It's a new chapter. It's declaring that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is now the central fact of my life. I'm not defined by what I've done. I am defined by what Christ has done right. I want to make sure that before we're done this weekend, that you have an understanding of this good gospel. See, the gospel is the good news, and the good news is this. That God made him who had no sin to become sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, here's the deal on the table. See, God says, why don't you transfer all your shame, all your sin, all your pain, and I want you to move it all, everything you've done, I want you to move it into my account. And it's going to be paid in full. When Jesus was on the cross and he said, made the statement, it is finished, he was actually using a Greek term that actually referred, it was an accounting term that referred to the last payment being made on a debt that was owed. That's good news. That's good news. But here's the thing that's not all he did, that's only half of the gospel. He doesn't just pay our sin debt. He actually says, here's the other half, and you have to agree to this. Now, I want to transfer all my healing, all my righteousness, all my holiness, all my love, all my mercy, all my grace into your account. How's that sound? That's a good deal. That is a good deal. Christianity is not about what we do for God. It's what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. That is the good news. So if you said, Pastor John, what's the central fact of your life? You know, I, I wouldn't go through all of the list of defining moments and things that have come up in my past. Because the central defining thing in my life has nothing to do with what I've done. The central fact of my life is what Jesus did for me 2,000 years ago. That is what defines me. Before I was born, before I was a thought in, in my parents' mind, I was in God's heart because he loves me with his whole heart. I want to pray for you this morning. Bow your heads with me, please. Father, thank you for the way that you are working in the hearts and minds of people this weekend. Lord, my prayer is that the resurrected Jesus Christ would be revealed and made so real in hearts. That that would be the thing that defines us and redefines who we are. Lord, for those of us who came in with seven problems that we can't fix or seven mistakes that we can't change, seven places that are broken, God, would you do for us what you did for Mary? Would you do it again and again and again? Lord, I I ask that you would resurrect hope and hearts that have been made sick and hearts that have been believing for the breakthrough and have yet to see it hearts that have been mourning and are waiting for the new dawn of resurrection father i thank you that you promise in romans 10:9 through 10 that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead that we will be saved Lord I pray that you would awaken our hearts awake give courage give bravery give boldness break off the chains that would hold people back from calling out to the only hope that we have the only hope that we have of redemption the only hope that we have at eternal life. Would you move in that way this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for joining us. Don't forget, you can find us online at cityoflights.church and connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.